Hello, and welcome back once again to a very special episode of the Inquisitor podcast. Today, my guest is Komal Shah. She is an educator. She has some fairly radical ideas in terms of what's needed in education and some really good thinking behind why we need to change our approach to education. And many of you will see the parallels in terms of how we approach training and coaching in the adult space in business. So, Colonel, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. My pleasure. Could you give the audience 60 seconds on your background and what got you here? Yeah, absolutely. I would definitely say that my life started when I joined the classroom or stepped into the classroom. So, I was a middle school math teacher for five years. I taught in a traditional public school, charter school, taught a lot of sixth and seventh graders. So, I say I'm a master of puberty and I know all about it. <laughs> <laughs> and loved everything, loved my kids, but uh, definitely had an internal struggle, which I'm sure we'll talk about today. So wanted a bigger impact, left, decided to go to business school, took two years at University of Southern California, graduated last year, decided, you know what, I'm going to go be an entrepreneur. So started my own business as an educational consultant. And of course, it's me. So I decided to write a book as well. So I have a book coming out this year in August. And uh, that's my journey so far. Excellent. Thank you very much. So tell me this. I mean, you, you're on a mission to um, help young people uh, be committed to evolving and transforming, transforming by discovering their higher selves and their true purpose. Now, some gnarly, hairy-ass uh, capitalist will probably be saying, what on earth are you talking about? So what, <laughs> what does that actually mean in practice? Yeah, absolutely. So I would just say everything in the context of when I was a teacher. And I think a lot of what we have done in our educational system is we have put a lot of our kids and we have tried to conform them into a system that's already built. And so we have, we're putting in every school year, a bunch of students in the classroom and we're saying, these are the rules, these are the expectations, and this is what we want from you. I don't think we ever ask kids, what are your passions? What's your purpose in life? What interests you? Let's make sure learning is actually what is relevant, but instead you need to conform to what we want. So that way you can be a good employee one day in a company. I'm minded of a conversation I had with a chap called Tura Bistrom. And the founder of his company, Salome, effectively changed the way the entire Swedish and ultimately Scandinavian education system works, where mm. it's very game orientated. So the mm. students teach each other and teachers are much more uh, facilitators than they are broadcasters. And you look at the standard of, of education in that region and it's breathtakingly high. And I compare it with the US and the UK where we have disaffected, largely apathetic student bodies uh, who would, in all honesty, rather be anywhere else. And then I compare it with developing countries where kids will walk 12 or 15 miles to go to school and yep. the excitement that they have around education. So I, I'm really curious to, about your take on why it is that education in first world countries seems to be something that it's fashionable to be apathetic about. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I think about every movie that you see. And if you see a school scene, 
it's a bunch of rows of desks with students and sitting in them bored and apathetic and a teacher in front. And all they want to do is get the school bell to ring and so they can leave. And I always just find that so odd. I'm like, we have this in our media. People know that kids don't like school. We've normalized it. I think a lot of it's historical context. I can speak to the U.S. We live in a capitalistic society. It's very competitive. It's very individualistic. It's about getting the kid who's going to have the highest marks, the highest grades, and the highest test scores. And we're going to associate that with the best college or the elite institution and ultimately going to go into a job with a good brand name and thus will be successful and validated in this life. And I think a lot of us didn't start out school apathetic, even in first world countries. You know, I've seen my students, they're excited to learn. And I think in a lot of ways, we suck it out of them, right? We kind of go, that's cool. You like to learn, but this is what we want you to learn. I think you touched on something really important here, which is often the student is blamed. I fundamentally believe there's no such thing as a learning disability. It's always a teaching disability. Um, and the, <laughs> the onus that. needs to be on the teacher to find ways to make learning engaging and exciting. And I, I look at the work that, oh, what's his name? The guy in Newcastle. He goes, builds a hole in the wall in India and a satellite modem. And he leaves a computer uh, running. And then six weeks later, he comes back. And these yeah. kids who don't speak have learned English in order to play with it uh, on the internet. And yeah. it's amazing what kids can do, given the right stimulus. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting because I do think a lot of it is on the teachers. But I will say a lot of it's the system itself. So yeah. when the system is telling you, these are your unit plans, you need to get all of this done by May because that's when our state test is, that's how we are going to be funded and that's how we're going to be evaluated. So now you also need to conform to these standards, even if every student, which we know as human beings, we all learn at different paces, but yet we put kids on the same track and the same pace, a lot of times because of testing, that's actually one of the biggest motivators, right? And as we know, if you're being funded for your scores, of course, that's going to be a motivator in the school system. There's a really fascinating parallel here in business, yes. because what I see is uh, how boards and executive teams are measured and compensated determines yep. the underlying culture of the management team, the sales team, the marketing team, and ultimately the people who they're meant to serve, the customer, the ones who suffer, because you end up with very transactional salespeople and you don't end up with people who are in service to the customer trying to help them solve their problems. So I'm really curious, when you've been able to create this level of engagement, What's the difference in terms of the attitude and the outcomes that the kids are experiencing that yeah. we can draw a parallel with in business? Absolutely. So I would say I was kind of a rebellious teacher. So when I first started out, you know, I was that sage on the stage. I was teaching the kids. I made them all listen to me. And I thought I was a good teacher. And you know why I thought that is because that's what I learned as a student is that's what the job as a teacher is. And having your kids be quiet and taking notes silently, like that's what a good educator does. And I would say by my fifth year, everything shifted. So I was a teacher that was on the back. I was like sitting in the back, eating oatmeal, watching my kids run the show. <laughs> I mean, that's really what it was. <laughs> and 
honestly, they took ownership. That's what's so amazing is kids want to actually take it and be empowered and want to learn on their own. And I will give you an example. By the end of the year, I had a project when I taught math. So they had to design their own playground. Every time my students walked into the door, they were excited. They knew they were going to work in groups. They know they were creating something that was actually relevant to them. And they were learning at the same time. And it was me doing one-on-one meetings with them about what they wanted to do and how they were going to construct it. They were excited. They were engaged. They were going home and speaking with their families about it. They were looking out at our playground in the school and go, oh, now I understand how much this costs. I mean, it was just, there was so much that was going on in the classroom. It was loud, but there was learning happening. And that to me is what feels successful versus a classroom when the kids are silent. Honestly, it used to make me feel weird when my kids did that. (laughs) Well, again, I can draw two parallels on this. Uh, The first one is uh, the one class I still remember 37 years later was a general studies class where we were the Russians and the Americans negotiating Salt Arms Treaty. And I remember Dr. McLaughlin was our teacher. I still remember the classroom. I can visualize every aspect of it. I can remember the conversation almost word for word. And as a sales trainer, what I realized far too late, uh, in fairness, so my apologies to all my clients, is that when the noise levels were at their peak, that's when they were learning the most. And giving them the problem to solve together is immeasurably more potent than me standing up being the font of all knowledge. Great for my ego, but they're learning in their retention rates. I I remember classes where we would do lessons learned and we'd go around the room and there'd be 57 lessons. Now, you don't get that when someone just sits there and just pontificates. Um, And I would actually draw another parallel to what I've seen in like the business world as well is like, I do think that a lot of companies pride themselves on having really hard workers and having really hardworking employees who are kind of obedient and are trying to get to up the ladder. And I see that a lot in students. That's where it all starts. You know, I think there are a lot of parallels of how we educate students based on how our business world is. And until that shift happens in the real world and in the workplace, I think we're going to keep doing this with our students because we ultimately want them to be obedient employees, in my opinion, and not very empowered. I think you've drawn another parallel, which is lots of people turn up on a Monday looking forward to Friday so that they can take home a paycheck and they live for the weekend. What kind of a life is that? If you are not constantly engaged and excited to be doing what you're doing, that isn't living, that's existing. Exactly. And it's normalized. Here's the thing, though. People are validated for it. And there's so much groupthink around it. I mean, I used to push back a lot in business school with my peers around this because they would say, well, it's just two years, but at least I'll have it on my resume. And I used to have a conversation with them and go, that's two years of your life. Like, you know, you're going to go in not excited and not enthralled. And I am someone where I live by my values. And if that means I get a pay cut, but I'm doing something that engages me, I'd rather do that any day. But I can also see how so many people have been validated for kind of existing. And maybe they saw their parents do it or their you know family members. So they just think, well, that's life and that's what we need to do. And that needs to change. <laughs> okay. Well, let's start with why you put on the, why have you been put on this planet? <laughs> oh, I love that question. To be honest, a lot has evolved in me. Before, if, I, if you were to ask me this, I would say, I just want to make an impact. 
I want to make an impact in which children, yeah, it's a little boring, I know, in which children are empowered to live their lives the way they want to and are not impeded by the judgments of the adults and other people in their life of who they should become. So that's kind of where my mission lies. But if I were to tell you just in life in general, what I've learned, my purpose is just to live. And that's taken a long time for me to understand that. That's really interesting. One of the things that I've spent a large part of uh, my latter career teaching people is the significant difference between role function and identity. So role is what you do. It's your job. It's being a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a golfer, a row, whatever. And who you are is your identity. And they are two very distinct and different things. Mm -hmm. And if you allow your role performance to affect how you feel about who you are, that not only dramatically impacts your performance, but it eats away at your soul. In terms of the way the education system, certainly in the US, is set up, what can you do in order to combat that role bleed going, uh, you know, eroding kids' identity? Yeah, I definitely think it's twofold. I think it is what we focus on in the schools. If we're going to continuously focus on what's next, you know, we have, there's this joke about when you're in kindergarten, you're supposed to play. And, you know, that's the present moment is to really just enjoy and play. And as we know, that actually supports learning. But we say, well, we're going to learn some writing and kids will go, well, why am I learning writing? Well, because you're going to need to know it in first grade. So we got to do it now to make sure you're prepared. The messaging is always about what's next. It's about college, about getting that job. The focus is on the role. I mean, how many kids have said, have been asked, what are you going to be when you grow up? The kid's a child. They're not supposed to have a career in mind right now, right? They're supposed (laughs) to be living. So I think that messaging, but I don't think anything's going to shift, in my opinion, until adults shift their mindset. So if they are not questioning their own education system, which educational experience, which I had to do myself, and really go, what is education? What's the purpose? If I want a child to be happy and fulfilled, should I be pressuring them for grades every day? Is that what success actually looks like? And I think only when we start questioning it and modeling it, will kids will start adopting that mindset as well. Because at the end of the day, I think a lot of times kids are quite powerless and adults are usually making the decisions. So until we become conscious ourselves, I think it's going to be very difficult to have that space for them. So what needs to shift in the minds of our leaders? Hmm. <laughs> what I, in my opinion, it should be, what is the purpose of education? If you look at the root word of it, it is actually taking the light from the darkness. It's extrapolating what's already existing within you. So I think a lot of leaders need to ask themselves, are our students actual human beings in our school and we actually care about them being successful on their own terms? Or are we going to put them in a bucket of being another score for our school and making sure they accomplish that? I think a lot of times those are being bled. And I think a lot of times we're saying, well, it's about the kid and what they want to do, but I don't think we necessarily push that way. Most of the time it is what's going to work for us or honestly, what's going to work for your parents, because there's a lot of parental pressure as well. I'll come to parental pressure in a minute, but I think what you've indicated there is that all this pressure coming through the system, and that must have ramifications in terms of mental health in terms of where kids see themselves and their role in society. 
Now, we, we saw a little bit of it with Greta Thunberg leading uh, the school strikes, but I'm really curious to see the impact, because uh, I know you've done a lot of work with underserved and underprivileged kids. What was the impact of those stereotypes and those expectations on those children and what were the myths and what were the truths once uh, you uh, dug under the surface? Yeah, so I'll answer your first question at the moment, but I mean, so what was detrimental in my opinion, so in general, I think in most schools, I think most teens or adolescents will tell you, we feel academic pressure. There's a lot of anxiety about test scores, grades, and it's constant. And most of the time, it's a lived experience that most children feel in school that never leaves and that tracks them throughout their life. So that is a big ramification. Now you're topping that with underserved communities. And the reality of these communities, unfortunately, is a lot of times these students are not just feeling that pressure at school, but there's a lot going on outside of school. So whether it is in the community that I worked in, there was a lot of gang violence. There was a lot happening in the community that was obviously affecting their mental health as it is. Now you're also perpetuating what may be going on in their families based on either poverty or other things that are going on that are now being pushed on top. So now you're talking about kids who are coming into school with so much going on at home. And now we're telling them at school, we'll sit down and just do this math test because now you'll feel better, which is obviously an exaggeration, but that's how it can feel sometimes. So the biggest ramification is that we weren't actually addressing the emotional needs of these children and what was going on outside. And they're in survival brain, right? Their cortisol levels are high. (laughs) This is, again, really interesting. And I see these parallels, particularly for junior salespeople uh, coming into companies Mm. because of the targets, uh, the pressure that they're under to make 50, 100, 300 dials a day. And they're always looking over their shoulder, waiting for the axe to fall. Now, one of the most important lessons I learned from transactional analysis is you'll only perform to the level that your self-concept will allow. And if you do not see yourself conceptually as someone who has the right to succeed, the right to learn, the right to perform well, then you will inevitably perform to that self-concept. And so you will find that uh, these kids will undermine themselves because of those mental prison uh, bars. So what can you do in order to help them get beyond that? You know, say maybe uh, say if you're a parent where uh, your kids don't see themselves as having the right to succeed. You know, I will add one thing to what you said. We live in a school system, too, where there's just a lot of categorization. And a, and a simple one is the good kids and the good students and the bad kids. And we do it so often. And that message gets impeded into kids. And these are malleable brains. And so we're saying, okay, oh, I've heard about you. Like, welcome to my class. Oh, I've heard about you. And so we don't even allow a child to get beyond those mental blocks. They've already been categorized the minute they walk into your classroom. That's so detrimental and so unfortunate. And I saw that constantly when I was an educator. To your point about parents, my question would then be, where? how do you get them to get excited about learning again? Because I think for all of us, when we evolve and grow and learn, we feel better about ourselves. So what it is about your child, is there something that excites them? Let them be more excited about it. Yes, it's video games, cool, push them further. How can they build a game, right? Continue to cultivate what already is there because it's so easy to go, well, 
you still need to learn math and you still need to learn science because that's what success looks like. But your child may not see that as being success. It could be something completely different that can make them successful. So push them in that direction, whatever that may be, and make them see that they're having those small wins. So they start building that confidence again, going, oh, I am good at something. I'm just not good at what the system believes is good. That's the only difference. So I'd like to explore then the power of uh, a deep relationship between student and teacher. Talk to me about your experience with that when you realized that being the talking head wasn't being a great teacher. It really took a blast to my ego. I'll be really honest with you. (laughs) It was not fun. You know, I think as teachers, our roles. So one, as I mentioned before, it's being our experience with teachers and what we saw. And a lot of that happens again in the classroom. They actually say a lot of times the teachers that are in the classroom tended to be good students. So if that's the case, they're going to believe that sitting silently listening to teachers is obviously going to be effective because that's all they know. Um, I think also teachers get a lot of pressure to be a martyr in the classroom that say somehow have to save these kids and they have to make sure that they succeed and do well. And so a lot of that leads to control. You want to control the space because you're so scared of how you're evaluated and measured of what a successful teacher looks like. And I think for me, it was honestly seeing my kids in the classroom, looking at me with bored eyes and slumping that I said, okay, like I just personally can't do this anymore. And so It did take a hit because I knew that if I was a guide on the side, which is what my push would be for an educator, is to be a guide on the side, supporting the kids and the learning that they want to do and how they navigate it, you will not get validated all the time. You will not get a, oh, my teacher is so good. You won't get it. That's the reality. You will get it at the end of the year, but you won't get it throughout. And so I think that as educators, we also need to understand that you will lose control and it will be scary at first, but just know at the end that the school is for your students. It's not about you and it is about them. And if it is about them, then you want them at the end of the year to go, thank you for empowering me and making me believe in myself that I can take control of my own learning. Again, you've sparked a a parallel for me. Are you familiar with something called the drama triangle? I am not. The drama triangle describes every broken, dissatisfying, dysfunctional relationship you can or will ever have on three points of a triangle. Mm. And if you imagine an equilateral triangle on its sharp point, and at that point you have the victim voice or the victim ego state. Why me? This is so unfair. This always happens. The universe is conspiring against me. And their favorite byline is, save me. So victims love a pity party, so they tend to congregate together, but they also attract two other types. They attract a persecutor who comes with a jabby index finger and the pronoun you in capital letters attacking their identity. You piece of shit, you always, you never, you're such a disappointment, you're all the same, you'll never amount to anything. And it attacks you at an identity level. It's very controlling, and that kind of teacher will encourage children to do the least amount possible to not get noticed. They never put their head above the parapet. They're never encouraged to be creative or have an opinion. The other side of the triangle is the rescuer. 
Now, rescuers, I think, are the most divisive of all, because at least with a persecutor, you know the boundaries. But rescuing is helping without boundaries or permission. It tends to mean that you are mollycoddling or permissive or micromanaging. And that's incredibly diminishing because you do the work and then they tell you how to do it right uh, without the permission. They, uh, they disempower you. And I see this in management. Now, Bruce Lee, my favorite philosopher, was asked, what's the best way to avoid a punch? And he said, be somewhere else. And the somewhere else is called the winner's triangle. So instead of being a victim, you're vulnerable. Instead of being persecuting, you're assertive. And instead of being rescuing, you're nurturing and empathic. And the power of that means that you can never get sucked into someone else's psychological gameplay. And you're always present and authentic. If you're in the drama triangle, you're spending your time worrying about the past or worrying about the future. You're feeling old feelings by dragging them into the present. And then you live in a world of blame excuses, justification, prejudice. Whereas if you're operating in the winner's triangle, you're in the here and now, you're always authentic. And it means that you can be very, uh, you can enter into constructive conflict, but you also admit when you don't know. And that is an act of courage. The word vulnerable comes from the Latin vulnerabilis, which means to put yourself in danger or harm's way, make yourself woundable, and do it anyway. Mm -hmm. So I'm really curious how your transformation moved you from that drama triangle into that winner's triangle. Yeah, you've said it is because I started a spiritual practice where I started understanding what it means to be a victim in my life. And it's interesting you say that because at this point, I have now realized that life is happening for me, it's not happening to me. And once I made that distinction, life has been pretty awesome. Because even if I have moments where I feel like a failure or feel like there's moments that are not working, I can be vulnerable and say, well, how is this helping me grow? How is this pushing me past so I can actually be successful? So when I was an educator, I was doing my own work outside of the classroom, my own personal transformation, where I was trying to deconstruct a lot of these really detrimental ideas of who I was. And especially as someone who was a good student growing up and whatever mm -hmm. good means, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, I'm very obedient and really didn't, you know, put myself out there in that way or be assertive. And so I really had to find my voice again. And that took a lot of unlearning and understanding a lot about who I really was. And now I could then put myself in an assertive position. And I have a lot of leadership roles in the past couple of years where I'm going, no, like I know what my voice is and I'm able to navigate that. But I do think in our education system, we raise a lot of victim mentality students. They are told to ask for permission for everything. So when you think that, then you may have those persecutors and those rescuers because you're going you're gonna to find them all because you're going, hi, I don't know what to do. Someone tell me. And that in itself makes me go, well, how do we raise people who are going to be in the winner's triangle from the beginning, right? And that's going to, that's a shift. Absolutely. And if you raise people to operate from the drama triangle, then they are always looking to be led and you don't create the next generation of leaders. And the other side of that 
is you create a sense of entitlement. And I, I think entitlement is probably the ugliest of human qualities because with, with it comes the expectation that somehow you deserve uh, to have these things handed to you on a plate. Education, learning is difficult. It's difficult work. And if you really want to learn, you have to put the hours and the miles in. It's not something that just so you, you learn through osmosis. You've got to put the effort in. But if it's not fun, if you're not engaging with other people, if you're not teaching other people, then chances are you're only getting a surface level education. So how do you make sure that the students are each other's teachers? Honestly, it starts from a very young age. And I think that if we look at early childhood, those spaces, that there's a more of it because a lot of it's play-based. The, the, the educator's kind of there just watching them play and interact with each other. They're learning from each other. And then something happens when they, they go to elementary school. I can't explain it, but then that, that shifts. And the interesting thing is the one way that I would say it could happen is one, obviously you're building a community in the classroom where kids can lean on each other, which is something that I used to try to do as much as possible, where they're trying to help each other through the process. But another one is that you have to step back as an adult. So you have to, if a kid's asking you, Hey, you know, Miss Shaw, what can I do with this? This sometimes I used to go, go ask, go ask your community member. Don't ask me. Now it's very easy as a teacher to answer that question, but I didn't want them to lean on me. I wanted them to understand they have to lean on each other. Um, but how does that work when you're still scoring your students individually you're grading them individually, you're scoring them individually, then it doesn't become, oh, I need to lean on my neighbor. It becomes, I'm now competing against you. You are a threat to me. So now I need to just focus on myself. And I think that's where a lot of this mindset shifts. Have you read the beta uh, about Michelle Rhee? I have not. I think you'll love that. Um, Michelle <laughs> Rhee is an educator in Washington, D.C. public schools. Okay. And she's been a massive advocate for school reform. Again, like you, she came from, um, from Korean immigrant family, a uh, very good girl daughter, um, yeah. and then just got absolutely incensed by the number of kids that were being left behind uh, mm -hmm. by the education system. Definitely worth investigating that. Michelle Rhee, R-H-E-E. I'm minded of another really interesting uh, example, which is Delancey Street, which is a rehab center for really hardened criminals run by a lady called Mimi Silva. And they have a 98% success rate, whereas the average for rehabilitation is an 80% failure rate. And uh, what they do is week one, black drug dealer, uh, may be paired up uh, with a white supremacist. A week later, the black drug dealer is dealing with a Hispanic pimp. And then, so each week, they then take on responsibility for mentoring somebody who ordinarily they would see as the enemy. And they have these very, very lively discussion groups, uh, these pods, and they are held to account uh, by their peers. And one of the things I'm really conscious of certainly in UK schools, is that behavior, it's expected 
that teachers will control behavior. But in these kind of environments, you have peer level control and the teacher has to let go of control. And I see this in a lot of very smart marketing where they are building communities. And by letting go of control, they end up getting honest, unfiltered feedback from their customers. I'm really curious to see what, um, how educators might be able to tap into that. Uh, yeah. Because it strikes me that if you get people to manage themselves, then they don't feel like it's being imposed. So they don't have anything to rebel against. Absolutely. And I love that. What a beautiful story. You know, it makes me think a lot about just our interconnectedness in general. And, you know, I always think that as human beings, when we come on this earth, we're all very interconnected. You know, you see children play with whoever. They don't care about, you know, the person's color of skin and gender or anything like mm-hmm. that. Babies play with anyone. It's over time that they're being enculturated and conditioned and programmed out of that, out of empathy, out of all of these things, because they start putting themselves in boxes and they're going, your box is different than my box and we can't be together in the same box, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, I love that idea. And it's something that I do think a lot about because to be honest, in the classroom, a lot of it is teachers should know behavioral management. They should know how to manage their, their students' behaviors. And I don't think that if we were to, you know, I think we always say that we want our kids to be activists, but how can they be activists if they've never even checked on each other? How do you care for the community when you don't, that's not even something you've experienced, you know? So I think we're trying to have something happen in the future, but we're never cultivating it from a young age. So here we are trying to, trying to, trying to move in the other direction. It's interesting because I think certainly in the US and the UK, we have a very, Uh, Greco-Roman type of approach, which is a philosophy that we need to be very um, self-reliant, that it's all about the individual. As you go further east, it's more about the community. And I I think we miss out a lot because you just have to look at the levels of loneliness and mental illness and isolation because of people not necessarily believing that they are worthy of being loved and respected or being part of uh, something bigger than just themselves. I'm seeing a generational shift as well. You know, fuddy-duddies like me grew up in the 1970s and 80s where it was all about get on your bike, you know, go out and find work wherever. It's up to you. And the US is very, very prevalent. It's all about self-determination, you only have to look at all these people uh, pushing back over masks. Um, you know, it's not about your civil liberties. It's about the community's health. Somehow that seems to be forgotten. Uh, whereas uh, if you look at places like Singapore, um, which again is by no means perfect, they had very low rates of COVID uptake. And as a result, they've been able to have a more normalized life quicker. What do we need to do at an initial education level to get people to be more community-minded. Yeah, I want to add to what you said quickly, which is I feel lucky. I feel blessed that I grew up with Indian immigrants and then also was born in America because I have the self-determination. I have all of that, but I've also been balanced out with my culture. And, you know, in the Indian community, if something happens, you know, someone dies or there's a health issue, I mean, everyone's running to bring food, to visit the hospital. I mean, it is 
the amount of community beyond family that's there is so prevalent. And I see it every day with my parents. And I always tell them, I say, I'm really thankful to see this because I now know what it means to really be a community and be there for people when they're in need. And it's something that I don't see in the Western culture as much. Now, as far as education goes, I think one of the biggest things is what is the role of the adult? And if the adult can step back in the room and allow the kids to build culture and community with each other, and they're just observing, very similar to like the Montessori approach, then you're able to kind of cultivate that community. But here's the thing, it can get taken away very fast. And that's what's scary. So if it's not happening grade level over grade level, it can be community one year, and then it can be individual the next year if that's what's pushed. So. I think that kids are already empathetic. It needs to be messaging in the culture from the beginning of the school. And it also needs to be modeled by the adults that you are there for each other. Us adults are there to care and be there for you, but you are all there for each other and you have to solve each other's problems or things that are going on. I think a lot of it, and I saw this recently, is this idea of childism. It's this idea that we see children as less than or subordinate to adults. So a lot of times when that happens, we don't want them to build community. We want to step in, you know, and support and help. But how do we see them as capable beings who can figure it out if we give them more time? Again, it's really interesting when you look at what's possible in terms of children with Down syndrome are often written off But the reality is that if you treat them in the right way and you give them uh, options and choices, they can live an incredibly fulfilled life. And the level of education is limited largely by the expectations of the educators, not by their true capacity. The example I was giving you uh, earlier uh, of the hole in the wall You have um, this hole in the wall. Basically, it's uh, a generator, a satellite modem, and a screen uh, with an internet connection. And six weeks later, I wish I could remember the guy's name because he definitely deserves it. I know. I know who you're talking about, but I don't remember the name Uh, either. (laughs) And and, six weeks later, these kids have learned English. You've got 20 of them wrapped around this wall, all giving advice with three or four of them controlling the mouse. And then he comes back and says, well, look, I'm going to come back in a couple of weeks. When I do, could you give me a presentation on photosynthesis? And when he comes back two weeks later, they're using PhD level material in a language they just learned to deliver their uh, presentation. Now, the plasticity and the uh, amazing power of the human mind, I think, is limited desperately by our education system. What I would love to hear is, uh, are are there uh, great shining examples of uh, educators who've been able to tap into that potential? Yes, there has been. And I, I do... I do think it's 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 twofold. It's educators who are within a system that's constrictive are still doing their best to really push the student's potential within the classroom. And whether that is as simple as collaboration, a lot of teamwork, a lot of conversation about emotional needs, building strong relationships with the kids, I think that's happening. Now, I think the educators that are really thriving are, are in school systems that actually support it. 
And so those are two distinctions who are not as restrictive. So I'll give you an example. Perfect. You found the name. Yes. Mitra. <laughs> yes. I have researched him and watched his TED talk and it's phenomenal what he's doing. So I'm so glad he found it. But you know, and then, so for example, I interviewed someone for my book and she has started an Acton Academy or a kind of private school in Canada. And she was talking to me about, we talk a lot about in the education system, student first, student first, student first. And she goes, no learner first, like learner centered. And she's like, when we say student centered, it still is showing that the teacher has control. When you say learner centered, it's really about them and what they want. And so immediately I asked her, I'm like, well, how does this even look? How do you even do this? She's like, oh, we train the teachers. Like you are here to just expand the potential of the child. That is your job. So when you are in that space with them, you are asking them questions. You're not giving them answers and you're having them explore what they want to explore in their own way. And they have seen amazing results and they actually don't even put pressure on their kids to go to college. What they call it is, is the next greatest adventure, NGA. Right. And I love it. It's like the best phrase yeah. I've heard because it's literally college. Sure. You want to work at a local business? Great. If you want to be an entrepreneur, amazing. It's whatever you want to do. And I think that's, to me, so expansive. I mean, when I think about the constrictiveness of schooling and how the end goal is college, and now you're actually giving choice. So yes. There are many good examples and it's happening, but unfortunately it's very fragmented and that's the problem. Um, there, there is another spectacular example, um, an educator called Kiran Birsethi. She came up with a program, which is one idea, one week, change a billion lives. And what she did was she started educating her seventh graders, uh, sorry, seven-year-olds. So um, they're, they're not even seventh grade, they're probably whatever, third or fourth grade. It was about educating them about child workers. Mm. So what she did was she had them roll incense for two days. And then for the next week, she had them go out and speak to local business owners in India about child labor. And net result of this is there are about a dozen cities that every month the children take over, the police, local businesses, entrepreneurs, all um, then support this uh, movement. And as a result, she's been able to educate so many people around the uh, wrongs uh, and the, the reality of child labor. But the kids are driving things. What's really fascinating is how amazingly organized they are and uh, working towards common purpose. And again, I think you know, something that we've, uh, we seem to have lost in our culture and our education is that commonality, uh, that shared humanity, because I think we've become terribly tribal. Uh, it's them versus us. That rarely results in anything good. You only have to look at the last five, six years in uh, geopolitics across the world, where there's been this polarization and anything that is different is seen as bad. It scares the living daylights out of me. Oh my gosh, I can talk about this forever because I think when you live in a world of duality, it's you lose humanity. And when you immediately put people in the good and the bad box, it's done. And it's interesting because a lot of what we've seen 
is what you said, this tribalism, this, it becomes a belief system. And when you start to put things in a belief system like that, you're not open to disagreements or people having dissimilar attitudes and beliefs as you. Right. And so I know for myself, I've been very scared. And I, I think that when I look at things, I'm, I'm, I'm more curious, I'm questioning, and I'm also realizing not everyone has to believe what I believe. It's just, we have to see, is this for the common good? Yes or no. Right. And I think that we don't even want to have that discussion because it becomes, who are you? Who do you believe in? Oh, you do? Yeah. You're not my friend anymore, which is ridiculous. But I don't think if people don't do the work themselves and actually, to your point, have that self-concept of believing in themselves and have belonging to themselves, I think we have a lot of disconnected people in our world, unfortunately. And when you have a lot of disconnected people, they will do anything to connect. And most of the time it happens in movements and groups that sometimes are unconscious. And so I don't think until we do the consciousness work individually and on that level to really understand who we are and come from an empowered space to, to your point, have constructive criticism and conversation, then this is going to continue to happen because people are just trying to latch onto anything to feel a sense of belonging. There's a wonderful exercise Buddhist monks um, practice, which is for 10 minutes, they have to argue for the existence of God. And then for the next 10 minutes, they have to argue against it. And they keep swapping those roles for hours on end. I think um, it's really important that we teach our kids to be able to hold two opposing views without descending into name-calling and negative conflict. So let's talk a a little bit about raising the levels of consciousness, um, Mm -hmm. because I I think a lot of people may think that this is just a, a lot of hippie incense burning. So talk to me about what goes on in that uh, personal transformation and growth uh, when you are more conscious? So there's two ways that can go about it. The first is where we're more proactive and it starts from a young age. So from a young age, you are modeling and teaching a child about what it means to sit in silence, to connect to their intuition, to come from a place of curiosity about the world and questioning everything instead of imposing beliefs onto them. And I think that in itself, if it's cultivated over time, actually leads to someone who is quite conscious because they're looking at the world and instead of imposing judgment or imposing, do you, are you similar to me? Good. Are you dissimilar to me? Threat. So instead of that, you're coming from a place like, I want to know more. I want to be empathetic. I want to understand you. I think that can be cultivated from a young age. Now, if that doesn't happen, which we're seeing a lot of now as children do become adults at one point, then it's a lot of unlearning. And that's what my process was. It was at the age of 23 going, who am I? What is my purpose in this world? What have I learned that I actually don't agree with? And how do I push myself past that? So it was a lot of uncomfortable moments of not feeling very good about myself because I had constructed an identity, an egoic identity of who I thought I was. But what I realized was it wasn't serving me. It wasn't serving the collective good. It was just pushing me in a separate, I was just separating myself from everyone. And that doesn't help anybody. So 
I think if we were to start unlearning and questioning things, such as something as simple as, for example, this is the job that I was told my entire life that I should do. Do I actually want to do it? Does this actually matter to me? Will this make an impact? Those are some of the questions that we can start doing. If I were to impose it myself, I would want people to, you know, dabble into the works of meditation and mindfulness and just sitting in silence and becoming conscious aware of the present moment. But I understand that people can associate that with a religious belief. But it's interesting because Dalai Lama says it best. He goes, if we taught every eight-year-old in the world to meditate, most of our hate and what we're seeing in the world would end over one generation. It'd be gone. And I think that's such a powerful statement. I have to say, of all the religious leaders, he's the one that seems to speak the most sense. It's really interesting. I think Buddhism seems to have got a lot right very early on in that what I see is attached, you know, the the Buddhist precept that attachment is the root to all misery. And -hmm. the problem is that if you're attached to an outcome, attached to being seen in a particular way, attached to your material possessions or your political position, then you automatically juxtapose yourself against everything rather than being for. And one of the other observations is that every child starts out uh, curious, autonomous, and self-directed in their learning until they get taught how to be adaptive, at which point they become compliant, they try to conform, or they become rebellious. Then they become smart Alex and the know-alls because uh, your views don't conform with mine, you're wrong, I'm right. And that doesn't really lend itself to learning. And I see this in many organizations where often people recruit in their own image only weaker. And what that results in is a lot of groupthink. Certainly in schools, I see this, where um, individuals will, will be singled out for standing apart and then they get bullied. So uh, again, it just strikes me that there is no good that comes from creating that kind of divisiveness and a sense of uh, entitled wrongness. Absolutely. And I would say what you, what you said makes me just think that children are already conscious. They're already aware. They're already observing. They're already empathetic. They're already all of that. To your point, we teach them how to be conforming and attached and all of that. It's conditioning and programming. I don't think that's the true essence of a child. It's just what they've been taught. And now you see many adults trying to unlearn all of that, which is painful because it's been so many, so long since we've done that. And as terms of attachment, I've had to go th- through that and it was painful and it yeah. sucked <laughs> <laughs> because I grew up in an Indian American community And being Indian was what I was very attached to. And I'm very proud of my culture, don't get me wrong. But I would say for the first 20 years of my life, I pretty much only surrounded myself with Indian people, people who thought like me, grew up like me, you know, all of that. And now I become a teacher in an underserved community where my kids are completely different backgrounds from my own, completely different socioeconomic status. And I'm going whoa, I have judgments and things about you and I don't even know you, but because I have become so attached to my identity that I have felt that everyone else is never going to be like me or understood by me. And it's taken me a lot to understand that because now 
I'm very diverse in the, in the interactions I have with people. Cause I'm not coming from, I'm Indian. Are you, I'm coming from, Hey, I am, who are you? Let's have a chat, you know? And it's a very different mindset, but it's taken a long time to detach from that. One of my mentors, Mark Galston, has a lovely maxim, which is let go or be dragged. I think far too often that attachment drags us over the coals and into very, very dark and bad places. I'm really curious to, I mean, we're, we're coming to the top of the hour, sadly, because I could talk to you for hours. I'm really curious uh, in, in terms of the things that you are struggling with at the moment. What are you uh, wrestling with? So much. Marcus, you want to help me? (laughs) (laughs) Don't don't go victim on me. (laughs) I think right now, I would say as I've been writing the book, I think, you know, for me, what has been a struggle is how do I explain the vision that I have for humanity in the future to, to where we are right now, to where education system is right now? And how do I bridge that gap? And it's been difficult. You know, I think people have a certain mindset about education and to now say that we should evolve it to this because it actually may be good for the collective good. That's challenging a lot of people's beliefs about what success is, what their success has been. And so that for me has definitely been challenging. And then in my personal life, I would just say, I'm always, you know, I'm just struggling to go, who am I? What's my purpose? I mean, that that's a reflective question every day. So I'll get back to you on that one. <laughs> Excellent. Well, on, on the first one, uh, let's chat after the recording, uh, because I may have a way to help you to do that. Okay. Um, so let, let's take 10 minutes. What are you reading, watching, listening to that you would urge other people to? Ooh. Okay, if you are someone who is interested to understand more about just purpose of life and trying to kind of understand who we are in this world from a non-religious aspect, Break the Norms is a podcast I'm currently listening to. And the person I'm listening to, he's a comes from a lineage of gurus in India. And so I really just love what he talks about. He's very humble and can also explain it in a way that feels very tangible. In terms of books, oh, you know, I've been really big into fiction reading right now. So if people want to talk about books that are imaginative, then I'm happy to do that. And yeah, I've been kind of, I think because I've been writing, I haven't been watching much. So that, that's kind of my influence. So what, what, one good fiction book that you'd recommend? Ooh, ooh hard question. I would recommend Room, which is, it's a kind of a sad book, but it's basically about a woman who becomes kidnapped. And as we know, in the real world, this happens sometimes. And, you know, she's like in a shed in the backyard of this man and eventually escapes. And uh, it just, I think it talks about something that unfortunately happens a lot in our worlds, but in a way that feels like you can try to understand it from their perspective. So that's a reason. Excellent. Okay. So you've got a golden ticket and you can go back and uh, whisper in the ear of the idiot Kamal, uh, 23 years old, what <laughs> would you whisper in her ear that you know she'd have probably ignored but would have benefited from if mm-hmm. she paid heed? Your happiness is more important in this world than satisfying other people's needs and expectations. Oh, like that one a lot. Very good. Okay. How can people get hold of you? 
I am on LinkedIn. You can just type in my name, Komal Shah, and I'll find you on there. Uh, you can also follow me on Instagram, Consult Komal. And in both of those modalities, there's my website. So you can check that out as well. My website's thekomalshah.com. Excellent. Komal Shah, thank you. Thank you so much. It was so wonderful. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. I know this was a slight deviation from our normal fare, but I think it was well worthwhile. So if you are the owner, CEO, founder of a tech company, and your goal is to grow your business and to achieve real, sustainable, fast growth and have highly engaged, highly productive uh, members of your sales, marketing, customer success, and account growth teams, and you want clients who stick with you year after year and bring their wealthy friends, then let's schedule time for a conversation. And if you've been following the Sales of Force for Good movement, then please get involved. Throw yourself in, volunteer. You can get hold of me at marcus at laughs In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.